can get settled. We're going to begin the uh, afternoon stretch run. All right, uh, so before, before we get started, I, wanted, I just can't help commenting because I was uh, glancing at Twitter and uh, all kinds of interesting stuff flowing out of the uh, proceedings here this morning, and it's kind of fun and apropos of our topic that there's been no small amount of Twitter traffic about various things that have already been said here. Uh, the one that really jumped out at me and to several of you guys already, uh, this morning we had a discussion in one of the morning sessions about what, if anything, might yet be out there waiting to uh, be revealed from the Snowden trove? And, and, and Chris had mentioned that his skepticism that there would be anything that revealed you know, political uh, snooping, that sort of thing, Hoover-esque kind of stuff. And, uh, and Siobhan had tweeted that. And then Glenn Greenwald picked up Siobhan's tweet and, and said, uh, his, he said cryptically, uh, put a star by this one, as if to say, watch this space. And then, of course, if you then follow the responses to, to Glenn's comments, there's a, there's a whole bunch of back and forth, including some of our participants joining in the discussion there. You've got to love Twitter. And you, and you, yes, thank you. And you've got to love Siobhan especially. Thank you. And so I know several of you are tweeting, and we appreciate it. So let's create more, uh, more content for the, uh, the social media universe, shall we? <laughs> Uh, in our last discussion on the Fourth Amendment, uh, the, the panelists were wonderful, and I appreciate it. They kept – it's hard to talk about the Fourth Amendment and not talk about the programs themselves. But everybody was very disciplined and kept staying away from too, going too far into the realms of 215 and 702, content versus metadata. And for many people in the room, that's probably actually quite frustrating. What exactly is 702? What exactly is 215, content, metadata? Can we be clear, please? Yes, we will now be clear. This is our metadata panel, and, I, and I'm joined by two wonderful experts who can help us shed light on this. Uh, on my left, Jen Daskal, law professor at American University. Uh, from 2009 to 2011, Jen was counsel to the Assistant Attorney General, the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Before that, uh, Jen and I worked together on the Detention Policy Task Force in, in 2009. Uh, before that, she was a senior counterterrorism counsel at Human Rights Watch, um, and and I'll, I'll draw the connection here with, with both Tim Edgar, uh, who will be on the next panel, and Jen both share this distinction of having done really serious and important work both in the human rights or, or civil liberties community in the NGOs uh, side and, and then going in-house with the government and working on it from the security side. And I, I think that's wonderful. Um, and she also is one of the founding uh, editors and writers at Just Security, which is a fantastic new blog if you – if you've uh, not been to it, check it out. Just Security is to be followed for sure. On my right, Stephen Bradbury. Stephen's currently a partner at Deckert. Um, from 2004 all the way through 2009, he was at the Office of Legal Counsel and, in fact, was head of the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department for many, many years. Um, critically, he was central to the effort to shift the telephone metadata program into a court-approved form in 2006, getting FISA court approval, and separately was subsequently very much involved in the creation of the legislation that uh, contained ultimately Section 702, which we'll talk about in the next panel. For now, just to be clear, we're focused on Section 215 
and perhaps other statutory tools that all involve the collection of metadata. So perhaps the, the best place to start, might I ask you, Stephen, to talk to the group just about what the program or these programs involving metadata, what are they, and kind of give us a common foundation. Sure, happy to do that. Thanks, Bobby. Um, Section 215 is a business records provision generally of FISA, which enables the FBI to gather business records from companies that may be relevant to a terrorism investigation. And uh, so it's not in general limited to metadata. But the telephone metadata program, which is under 215, is limited to telephone metadata. And metadata just means data about communications in this case. And it's business records because these are records uh, that the telephone companies generate when they connect calls, and they generate these records for the purpose of billing customers. And this metadata of telephone calls consists only of tables of numbers. It's what phone number called what phone number at what time and for how long. No other information, no subscriber information, no content of anybody's phone calls. So this is not a dragnet that enables the government to listen in on phone calls or see anything about the substance of phone calls. It's what about the names of the, the number owners? The subscriber names does, do not come in with the information. As people pointed out, it doesn't take a lot of work to connect a phone number to a name if you want to do that. But this database is only numbers, tables of numbers. And the uh, when it goes into the NSA computer, so there's a court order to different telephone companies, and really the purpose of the program is to aggregate the data from multiple companies and, and put it in a common searchable format so it's usable in an efficient way, and then to preserve the data because the phone companies don't keep it for very long. They keep it for 18 months or in some cases a little longer. They keep it for their own business purposes, for billing purposes, uh, and to resolve billing disputes, etc. Um, so when the NSA collects it under this court order, uh, which is approved by uh, judges on the FISA court, regular federal district judges, every 90 days, and it's been approved every 90 days since 2006, they keep it for five years. And they don't uh, do data mining, random searches, pattern, you know, searching for suspicious patterns through it. They don't do, they don't use that kind of technology to randomly search through the, the bulk data collection looking for patterns. Instead, under the court order, they're only allowed to access it when they have a reasonable suspicion that a particular phone number they know about is associated with one of a small number of foreign terrorist organizations. And if they have a phone number with that reasonable suspicion, then under the court order, they're allowed to test it against the database to see what other numbers uh, it has communicated with. And they do that up to two hops out. They have in the past done it when they have reason to do it, when they see some suspicious uh, pattern or something, up to three hops out. So they get a little collection of data that is of phone numbers that have been connected one, two, maybe three hops from a suspicious number. And they use it to try to identify new phone numbers that they didn't know about before that also may be associated with that terrorist organization. So this is really an effort to generate new leads in an investigation. 
And the most important types of numbers they're interested in would be in the U.S. because that might be a new cell, terrorist cell, associated with that organization that we didn't know about before. So this is a way to, to identify new phone numbers that may be important leads in an investigation of a foreign terrorist organization that we think is maybe plotting to attack the U.S. And what they do, the output of the program, is simply to take that new phone number they've discovered and tip it to the FBI. And then it's up to the FBI to follow up, investigate, look into that number. If they generate suspicion about that number, eventually they may have probable cause to get a warrant to tap that line to search or something. But that would be an individualized warrant that would be approved uh, based on probable cause. Can I ask a quick follow-up question so I understand this better? The the seed number, the one that is the basis for saying, I, I have reasonable, articulable suspicion that this number, 5551212, uh, is, is associated with an al-Qaeda member, for example. Um, is that often or can it even be a U.S. person's phone number? Yes. Could it, but is it is it so it could be a U.S. person or it could be a foreign person. Right. It could be anything as long as you have that reasonable, right. articulable suspicion. But again, just having the reasonable suspicion doesn't mean the NSA then gets to listen to that person's phone calls or get any kind of detailed information about the per, actual private communications of that person. All it means they could do is test that number against the database to see what other numbers it's been in communication with. Um, and... Uh, and the, really the purpose of this is to try to find connections that we wouldn't otherwise see. And uh, I think the president has said and others have, have said that if we had had this capability in place prior to 9-11, it would have enabled us to discover the two hijackers who were hiding in San Diego, who were in communication with a safe house in Yemen we had the safe house in Yemen under surveillance. We're actually listening to communications that the hijackers in San Diego were party to overseas. We didn't know the other end of the line was in San Diego. This program was intended to fill that gap so we could see those connections, try to discover uh, a phone number that might be used by a new suspect we didn't even know about, particularly important if that suspect is in the U.S. So the basic idea is to... You're, you're hoping to find needles that might be out there in the haystack, and it's to create a haystack that's right there in NSA's hands, readily available, when you find out that there might be a need to look for a needle there. That's the basic idea. Yeah, but I guess I would point out, Bobby, that I don't really like the needle in the haystack analogy because that suggests in the mind that they're taking the haystack and they're sifting through the entire haystack to find that needle. It's, the, it's really the opposite in this program. It's been very focused from the beginning. They already have the needle, a needle, and the question is what other straws has it been in communication with? We might find that one of those straws is another needle. All right, so it's, it's, it's an effort to, to le- try to lead us to another needle, but the, 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 and they don't really want all the data, uh, but the problem is you can't find the straws you don't know about unless you have the largest set of data. And in particular, if you don't have this bulk collection for a period of years, you can't do any effective historical analysis, which can be, in this context, some of the most important analysis. So for example, just quickly, if you had a plot you were investigating three years ago that involved a cell, and you're, you're aware we knew about four phone numbers that were associated with that plot three years ago in Schenectady. 
right? And we have now, today, we discover a new phone number that's associated, we believe, with one of these terrorist organizations, and we put it in, and voila, we see, if, if we have the historical set of data, some, ke- some connections, some patterns to those four numbers three years ago. This ends up leading us to a fifth phone number that may have been associated with that plot three years ago. We didn't know about that fifth number before. That's an important lead that begins then a follow-up by the FBI. So we'll, we'll talk in a second about the, the legal foundation for all this and the issues associated from the law side. And we'll also talk about whether it actually works in practice. But at this theoretical level, we've just discussed what it is that the program is meant to do and theoretically what benefits would flow from it. Uh, what about theoretical costs? Jen, are there, are there things that jump out at you as potentially costly about pursuing such a program? Sure. So I think, I think it's worth, um, when we're talking about the effectiveness of the program and, and, and the benefits versus the costs, I think there's a few things that need to be taken into account. So one is the question is, first of all, there, I think we'll talk about this in a minute, but how beneficial has this program been in practice um, versus how beneficial could it be theoretically? Um, and then there's an the important question as to whether or not these benefits could be achieved through alternative means. And we have now had um, a president's commission, um, an independent um, board called the P-Club, and the president himself all recommending that this program in this particular format be dismantled under the presumptive assumption that it's not necessary to keep it in its current format in order to adequately protect our nation's security. Um, and, 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 and the president in particular, as well as some competing alternatives from Congress, have suggested alternatives that would still allow the government to do some of this um, analysis of call data records without necessarily keeping it in the government's hands for um, long periods of time. Um, but secondly, when we're talking about the benefits and costs, I think one, one question is, can, you, can this be done through alternative means that keep us sufficiently safe? And then if, if, even if it can't be done to the same, even if there's theoretical possibilities of types of information that can't be collected through those alternative means, are those theoretical benefits worth the cost? And I think there's th- at least three costs to consider here. One is, one are costs to privacy and civil liberties, which we've been talking about on and off all day. Another are costs to public trust. I mean, obviously the disclosure of this program has has led to an enormous amount of discussion and debate and public dissatisfaction um, with with the public's view of what the government was doing. And then thirdly, there are real economic costs. So um, it's not just the public trust in the United States, but it's international trust and international cooperation and what that does to our businesses in the United States, corporations in the United States who who have lost an enormous amount of business in iCloud computing and various other businesses as a result of consequences of some of these revelations. So I think those are at least three costs that ought to be considered when evaluating a program like this. So the question of cost is an interesting one, and I was just wondering as you were saying that, how much of the cost, in, in terms of, you identified the, the public reaction, the cost to the credibility and so forth, and, and, and then that relates to, to the impact on the private sector. How much of that's baked in, if you will, to the fact that this type of collection was taking place in the abstract, such that no matter how it was presented or how the public first learned about it, there was going to be this cost? But how much of it is, is sort of a, an own goal, a self-inflicted wound, by virtue of the fact that it was 
done the way it was done. That is, it happened for years and the public didn't know, and then it comes forth through the Snowden disclosures in this highly dramatic way. In other words, if it had begun with a public attempt to say, you know, we want this authority, let's go to Congress, have a public debate, and if they were to have gotten it, would it be so costly? Um, that's a great question, and I think it points to the importance of transparency in, in all these programs, not just transparency as to, as to what the government's doing, transparency as to the standards, transparency. Um, I, 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 I think I agree with Bobby, the implication of Bobby's comments, that if there had been a public debate and public discussion, we, one, may not have ended up with the program as it exists, um, and two, whatever we ended up with, there at least would have been knowledge about it and some public buy-in by at least our members of Congress our Senate, and, and some public that supports that, that decision to, to create whatever program we ended up with. Of course, it's water under the bridge. Uh, we, we went the way we went, and there is at least the, the reaction and cost that you identified. Uh, going back to the uh, – so what is it you're getting? What's the, the candle you're getting for that effort or the flame, whatever the analogy is? Stephen, what's the benefit in actual practice? How, how useful is this or has it been? Well, I, I think the discussion of effectiveness of the, this particular program has been uh, – uh, has gotten off on a wrong track. The, the focus in some of the public hearings and the press reports and the debates about the program always comes down to what attack – did this program prevent? What plot was this the critical piece of evidence in unveiling or, or discovering and stopping? Uh, it's kind of like the gun was pointed and, the, and, and uh, cocked and ready to fire, and this was the silver bullet or, uh, piece of uh, evidence at the last minute that, that uh, allowed us to, to stop that attack from occurring. The problem with that is that it simply can't work and can't be uh, a re really a relevant and, and um, useful measure of effectiveness for a program like this. Because as I tried to describe earlier, uh, this is intended to be an early on input into an investigation of a group, a foreign terrorist organization. And again, this is a program that enables you to, to first detect connections and discover new phone numbers that you didn't know about before. And then to tip them to the FBI, they follow up, and it may lead somewhere. So it's simply an input, and it's a building block in investigation. And I, and I believe it can be an important input, an important building block, Anytime it's used, even if the information is a negative, even if it proves that this particular number that's you, that you know is associated with this group overseas has not been in communication with certain people or certain, certain numbers in, or at all in the U.S. That's important information. And so uh, it, it allows us to see connections or, or to see that there aren't connections in a way that can be a really important input. I, I don't know. I think uh, perhaps a more significant measure – uh, that I've I've thought about. I don't know if this is a practical matter would would be uh, revealing or not, but I think it might be. We all know that the president every morning gets a briefing, the presidential daily briefing on the the most significant uh, national security threats facing the United States. I wonder for how many items that have appeared on the presidential daily brief has this program provided at least some input. Has a number been tipped from this program? 
that's probably information that the government could compile and could report. I think that's the kind of thing that would be uh, a more relevant and useful measure rather than which actual plots was this the critical piece of evidence uh, to prevent. Raj, could you get on that? Thank you. Thank you. So, so I just... <laughs> So I just want to respond and encourage everyone to read the, the PCLAB report because I think if you the, the language of the PCLAB report I think avoids the mistake that of suggesting that the only way that we measure effectiveness is if a specific plot was an imminent specific plot was stopped through the use of this data. And the PCLAB report actually, from my reading of it, goes through and analyzes the way in which information obtained through this program has led to things like leads that Steve was talking about and has suggested that that's happened, that there's only been 12 instances in which this program has been helpful in that affirmative way. Now, I agree with Steve that this doesn't cover negative reporting, the question of using this data to kind of rule out other plots or to, or to focus um, investigations by ruling out other suspects. But in terms of its affirmative um, assistance to, to helping with specific plots, the, the PCLAB report, at least through much analysis, found that this, and based on reports from the intelligence community, found that this was used 12 times, and according to the PCLAB report, it only arguably identified one unknown identifier on one occasion, and the report also concluded, and I think this is, um, this conclusion is relevant to the president's determination that, that this program ought to, ought to end in its current form, that all of this information could have been obtained if the program were designed another way, i.e. making targeted requests of service providers rather, rather than collecting all this information in bulk. Now that said, I think we ought to also, we, so much of our conversation on this program on G15 collection is on the collection issue and not on the use issue. And I think we ought to spend a lot, of, a lot more time looking at the question of what do we do with the data once it's collected, whether it's in bulk collection or whether it's collected through more targeted means than just focusing exclusively on the collection issue. So uh, PCLOB is the Privacy and Civil right. Liberties Oversight Board, um, and there's a if you go looking for that, you'll find all sorts of interesting things, including, I think, uh, you can you can watch several of our guests at this conference uh, testifying. Uh, yeah, Stephen, were you there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, testifying at great length. So if you don't get enough here, go there. But stay here first. So uh, you guys have drawn this very useful distinction, I think. And we're, we're trying to construct a model here of how you assess the utility of this program. Um, this is really a policy discussion still at this stage. And, and so obviously a bit of a cost-benefit analysis. And on the benefit side, we've, we've identified a distinction between the possible affirmative benefits where you, where you spot a lead, you, 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 the contact chain reveals something or maybe reveals something, and you tip the FBI to go look at that further previously unknown number. That's the affirmative benefit side. And in, in toting up the affirmative benefits, no matter how incomplete the haystack is, if it's producing some stuff, well, that, that's better than not getting those tips. Uh, on the negative benefit side, which is a distinct kind of benefit Steve identifies as possibly flowing from this, that's the benefit where you have a foreign target phone number, for perhaps, or you, ha you have a suspect number, and you run it through the system, and you find, oh, no results. Good. At least well, that's comforting. No results. There's not somebody else in the U.S. in contact with them. That one kind of depends whether that's a useful result to you or not. It depends on whether you had a pretty complete data set, right? Mm -hmm. If you only had, if you knew in advance you only had 30% of the possible phone numbers that were in the haystack, and you run the suspect number through the haystack and it shows no results, 
Well, that doesn't really give you a lot of comfort, right? You don't, there, there may be among the 70% of missing phone numbers all sorts of people in contact with a suspicious person. Now, there was some media reporting flowing from, uh, I believe, from Snowden documents. I'm not sure what the original source was, suggesting that th- lately at least the, the take, the, the percentage of phone numbers that were getting into the metadata haystack uh, was around 30%. But General Alexander, who until very recently was director of the NSA, uh, has publicly contested that number, saying that wasn't accurate. And this goes to the, the discussion this morning during our media panel about how th- there can be mistakes of understanding about the actual underlying facts that flow from some of the, the revealed stories. But bearing that in mind, even if, even if the number is actually much higher, they're getting uh, cell phone numbers at a much higher percentage than 30%, maybe it's 80 or 90% of the Verizon and AT&T and other numbers, we're entering into this period in which so much what you might think of as telephone traffic maybe is actually a Skype call or Viber or some other thing that maybe isn't even part of that uh, call altogether. In other words, you could have some person who's very much in contact with lots of people in the United States. I mean, let's, let's hope that didn't happen, but it could happen, uh, where contact chaining, if truly comprehensive, would be really useful to know. But it doesn't show up because these guys are all using Skype or some other technology that I don't even know about, but that, that displaces and is a substitute for something that would show up in toll billing records. Bearing that in mind, does that mean at the end of the day the negative benefit side really can't ever be very comforting and we should only tote up the affirmative benefit side? Stephen, what do you think? Well, uh, there's always you're – you're never going to get 100%, and uh, you're never going to – uh, prove to a metaphysical certainty the negative. Uh, that's true. And uh, I think the NSA is always in a, a, a technological race in terms of trying to, to be able to access the relevant database of information to do the relevant uh, contact analysis, uh, connect, uh, connecting the dots. And I think what uh, that article was referring to was the fact that uh, – the program may not have included certain cell phone carriers at certain times, may not have included Internet-based calls at certain times. And I think the NSA, as General Alexander has said, uh, has modified the universe of metadata it was collecting on telephone calls as telephone calls migrated to different technologies over time. Uh, but it was never it's never been 100 percent. But the point is, for something like this, if you're trying to uh, collect a database of metadata for purposes of an analysis of connections with a seed number, you're always trying to get the largest collection you can get to have the most useful analysis, right, of, of connections and, uh, and patterns. And what I'm really concerned about in, in some of the changes that have been made uh, and the changes that are being proposed is we are consciously making a decision, which I think is a policy decision. I don't think this is a legal decision driven by the Constitution. Notwithstanding some of the discussion in the last panel, I think the constitutional basis for the program is very clear and very sound. Um, It's a policy question, and I think it should be and will be addressed by statute, and I agree that on balance, it would have been better for the country if we could have done it in a more open way through legislation. Um, unfortunately, in the national security arena, sometimes the legislators in Congress uh, 
have no interest in addressing an issue, a very sensitive and difficult issue, through legislation. And it's only when uh, there is perceived, widely perceived to be an overwhelming critical need, which was the case in 2007 and 2008 with the Protect America Act and the FISA Amendments Act, that Congress will actually dramatically change the landscape through a legislative solution. I think this debate is precipitating uh, that uh, kind of discussion, and I think you know some of the proposals on the Hill for a new legislative approach, I think, I think that's a good thing, and I do think uh, the President has recognized with Section 215 up for reauthorization next year as a practical matter with all the controversy this has generated, there is a need for Congress and the executive branch to come together on a new, on a new uh, approach through legislation. Jen, I noticed that uh, Stephen said a moment ago that he feels that the existing program is constitutional, and I wonder if you agree. Um, so, so it's constitutional depending on one's interpretation of the Smith v. Maryland case that um, was talked about earlier. Um, in the in the previous panel, so it's, I, I don't want to rehash everything that was said in that panel. I mean, so, but um, the the issue is whether or not, and there's two issues: whether or not there's even a Fourth Amendment search here. And the government's argument is that there is not because they're collecting third party data, basically. Um, and again, I I share the concerns of those who think that the Smith v. Maryland case from 40 years ago that that captured data for 13 days from one phone call is not an applicable or relevant, particularly relevant even, um, uh, uh, case on which to 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 hang our hook for this entire very different, very. Um, new type of perspective collection of individuals' metadata to from uh, duration of calls over a period of a very long time that can, as, as was talked about this morning, tell, reveal a lot of information about an individual. So I think that there are real Fourth Amendment questions here, and then if the Fourth Amendment applies, there's a question as to whether or not um, this type of collection can be justified under what's known as a special needs search. So I think there's questions here, and they're unresolved, I think. Um, I also think that there's big statutory questions as to whether the statutory provision which authorizes this collection, which basically authorizes the collection of tangible, the collection of business records when there's reasonable reason to believe that the tangible things that are going to be collected are relevant to an, or to an uh, investigation. And so here, the real push is on this notion of relevance. And it's the, the position, the government's position, that these, this information is relevant because um, all of it um, can potentially, essentially, lead to information about purportedly an ongoing investigation about presumptively al-Qaeda other terrorist organizations. And so what that suggests, or the pressure that's put on that, is that collection of basically all different types of metadata could potentially be relevant if it could eventually tell us something useful, potentially, about some target of an investigation or an organization. And so I think the risk of that, or the, the I mean, there's two issues there. One is it's not clear that the American public or even most of Congress had any idea what, how relevance was being interpreted when Congress authorized or passed 215 and subsequently reauthorized 215. And then secondly, there's questions about what this means, not just for the telephony metadata program, but for other potential um, collection programs. Now, we've heard repeatedly that there aren't other metadata collection 
taking place under 215, but I think at least the legal framework is there to allow it to go forward, and we ought to be having a debate about that as well, which just leads me to my very last point, which is that I actually think that this discussion about telephony metadata is actually really focusing on the forest through the trees, because as Bobby just mentioned, more and more of our communications are going to be switching to Skype communications and to communications that don't, in, don't leave these call detailed records where the to from information just isn't even there. Companies aren't keeping this as part of their business records because they're billing based on packets. They're bill, bill, billing based on broad, broad bandwidth. They're not billing based on individual call records. And so our focus, our, our extensive focus in the legislature and our public discussion in um, what the president's focused on on telephony metadata is really going to be obsolete in four or five, six years, if not sooner. It's sort of a, a biplane problem. We're, we're focused on this state of current technology, technology that's familiar to us, but that 10 years from now may not be further reflected. That There was a discussion last night about the parallel internet metadata. So uh, there you can imagine the parallel program for your metadata on emails. And, and, and Chris had said uh, that, you know, at the end of the day, if it, the companies don't keep the records that way, it's, it's inefficacious to try to collect them in bulk the way you can much more conveniently from the phone companies. And Jen's point being that, you know, insofar as all the communications eventually end up there over the next five to ten years, um, this, this may, in retrospect, be sort of a, a a debate that's only really relevant during that one period in time. But then again, I just said the magic word relevance in, in this. <laughs> so the, the, two, the two legal lenses through which you got to think about this are, one, is it constitutional? And we've, we've heard a lot already now about third-party doctrine and a possible national security exception. An entirely separate question is, is there affirmative statutory authority to go compel production or ask for production from a company who's got the records, assuming they work, um, and, and the linchpin theory was, re, was interpreting the relevance test in the Section 215 business records rule not to, not to only mean individualized relevance, your records and your records are relevant, but that even if they're not relevant individually, collectively they're all relevant. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love it if Stephen would be able to hold forth on what it was like internally in, in pursuing the initial order that, that worked under this theory. I suspect you probably can't explain, you know, well, it was, it was me, it was lunchtime, I just sort of thought of this. Um, if you cared to share that story, that'd be, that'd be wonderful. But assuming you can't, can you at least talk about um, what do you think that particular interpretation uh, is, in fact, the right interpretation of the statute and one that um, is, is applicable to the perhaps to national security letters or pen register trap and trace orders as to uh, mm -hmm. business records? Yes. I do think it's uh, a sound interpretation of the statute. I do think it's consistent with the way the relevant standard has been applied, for example, in the context of administrative subpoenas where regulatory agencies and investigatory agencies have very broad authority to collect large batches of data, documents, information that are relevant to an investigation that the agency is doing. Sometimes they're investigating whether uh, a statute has been complied with or violated, and they collect large amounts of information about commercial transactions in, a, in an entire industry, for example, as part of a, a very broad review and, and examination. And in the context of even criminal investigations, sometimes it's necessary to collect a vast amount of data on a particular uh, occurrence or in a particular area as part of an investigation. So if there were an event at the Super Bowl 
and we didn't know who was responsible. Uh, certainly, collecting all the information about everybody, the the information about the the tickets of everybody who was it at the game, for example, uh, would be relevant to the investigation of whether one person at that game was the person we're looking for. Uh, same, and that's the approach that's taken with uh, with uh, information about travel. Uh, I mean, uh, an example is uh, Homeland Security collects information on all international travel, who, passport number, where you're going, purpose of, of travel, et cetera. They keep it in a database. Okay, that's by statute. And the uh, statute requires them to share with the National Counterterrorism Center all information they have about terrorist travel, travel information about terrorists. That's another way of saying travel information relevant to terrorists. Well, what do they do to share it? They actually, under a memo, memo of understanding with NCTC, they loan them their entire database for everybody's tr international travel. That's how they supply information relevant to terrorist travel. And NCTC then shares that with other agencies. So there are situations like this where it's understood that there may be a collection of information that could be relevant, that could contain records that would be useful in an investigation, and you need to preserve that whole database so that you can later, when you do have a specific need, do your search to try to find those useful uh, those useful records. And that's the point of the use of the relevance here, is to preserve an entire database that is essential. It's essential to have that database to be able to do this analysis and, and discover the new numbers. But under the current proposals that are, that are being made, the President has made a proposal, the House Intelligence Committee has made a proposal to, to not collect this telephone metadata in bulk anymore and house not to hold it in servers controlled by the NSA, but rather simply leave it with the telephone companies and not uh, preserve it historically. And uh, that's a major policy decision. And if you make that decision, then you will lose the capability of seeing those connections historically. You, you won't be able, and maybe we decide, you know, we're far enough from 9-11, the threats are such, they're not as acute uh, as they once were. Footnote, I don't believe that's the case if you ask people like Chris Inglis and General Alexander. But let's assume that's the, the public mood and the public conclusion as a policy matter. Then, then maybe it's worth it. It's fine. Uh, but you are l losing the ability to do, that, uh, to do that historical analysis and to find records that may be useful to an investigation. Don't you still have it at least going back 18 months? I mean, I think most of the proposals assume there will be a... Yes. Yeah. Yes. So 18 months is very valuable. Three years might be very valuable, too, uh, maybe a little less valuable. Um, I, I would just say in terms of the legal analysis, I think, and Raj can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they have declassified, at least in substantial part, a 2004 opinion from Judge Calacatelli, who was the presiding judge of the FISA court, which was the legal basis for the email metadata collection under the pen register provisions, matter of public record now that 
there was an email metadata collection done under pen register provisions, which depends on the same relevance analysis. And it was the Collar-Catelli analysis from 2004 that was the basis for the legal analysis under the parallel provisions or terminology of 215. Very good. Um, so we've, we've mentioned a few times that there are some proposals to reform all this, and I think it's probably worth getting down the table so everyone understands what exactly is in play. Now, we don't have all the details yet, but the president has talked in broad terms about the White House suggestion as to how to proceed. There's a House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence proposal. Could, could either of you uh, describe the president's particular proposal beyond what we've already said? Sure. So the president's already made um, one change to the, to the program absent legislation, which is that rather than, um, as Steve talked about, the, the protocol was that once this data was collected, there has to be reasonable articulable suspicion, suspicion to search, and that decision as to whether there was reasonable articulable suspicion was made um, by one of 22 individuals in, in the NSA with two, at least two people signing off. That decision's now been each each time the data is searched under the current protocol, the data there has to be approval by the FISC. So, um, so that change is already in place. And the additional changes are that the key change is that the government would no longer collect all this information. The information would stay in the hands of the providers, and the government, according to the president's proposal, would would query these the, the pri private providers' databases and be able to collect prospectively. Um, under an order that identified a specific person for some period of time. And are you comfortable with the broad outlines of these pieces? That's a program you could live with? I mean, yes, I think that there is, I mean, I, again, there's a lot of details that are left um, unstated. I think there's, providers have some questions about it, so there's some concern among providers about being in the position of, of holding onto this data, particularly if, as, I, as we just talked about, the business model switches so that um, providers wouldn't ordinarily be keeping these call data records for 18 months because they don't need it for billing purposes anymore. So there's questions about um, cooperation with the providers. Um, I think that requiring some sort of court order before the data base is queried, whether whoever has Whoever stores the database is, is an important um, step forward. Yeah, Stephen, you've already made clear you think the 18-month the period is, is not ideal. You'd rather have it be longer. What about this business of NSA not being able to then put a seed number as a query into that haystack without first going for uh, specific approval to do that from a court? Yeah, well, I think that raises some real serious concerns about the uh, flexibility, efficiency, and nimbleness of the program. Um, a reasonable suspicion standard is modeled on uh, a sort of Terry Stop uh, standard that police on the beat use. It's intended to be a standard, or was intended to be a standard, that the professional intelligence analyst would use who's familiar with the information in the field and the stream of information and can make very quickly. When you interpose the court approving the reasonable suspicion determination first before you can go to the database, um, if you just think about it, necessarily that now requires the intelligence analysts at the NSA to communicate with a staff of attorneys in the National Security Division of the Department of Justice, explain to them the basis for the reasonable suspicion, 
those lawyers at justice who are the ones who will go to the court and ask for the approval need to be convinced that it's correct because they don't want to go to the court if they're not sure that it is reasonable suspicion. So you're going to have to explain it to them, and they're not intelligence analysts, so you're going to have to communicate it you know, in words, right? So it's probably going to come from lawyers at the NSA to lawyers at, at NSD. Then those lawyers are going to have to communicate it to the legal advisors at the FISA court and the judge who's on duty at the FISA court who are not intelligence analysts. They know a lot about these issues, but nevertheless, how is it communicated? Well, initially it's communicated in paper, okay? So you're going to have to write a submission, an application, and you're going to have to have it supported by declarations from people who know the information. So somebody who's a legal advisor, who's like a, who went to law school and is a lawyer, right, uh, has to read and understand and say, yeah, that's reasonable suspicion. I, I agree with that. And then the judge gets it, and the judge will read it and say, yeah, that's reasonable suspicion. So it's, it necessarily it's going to involve a cadre of lawyers and a bunch of paper. And because that's the way lawyers communicate things to uh, to courts, so they can understand it. Which, if if uh, we can live with that kind of delay and and less efficient system, it's fine. I mean, it is better. It's always better to get in terms of. Uh, avoiding the potential for a loose application of the standard or uh, an overly broad use of the database, etc. I mean, I think we've heard about numbers that are so small in terms of the number of seed numbers that have been put into the database to begin with that it's, I don't think there's a case that it's been overused. Uh, I really wonder, you know, there's a question, practical question about how it would be done. Um, I seriously doubt it would be done, maybe it, maybe it is, one number at a time, um, or might you have a whole list of numbers that you put into the court periodically? Because I don't think the court itself has, in Judge Bates, who used to serve on the court, basically said this, I don't think they have an interest in getting these things one at a time, uh, depending on the quantity. Um, I, I kind of worry b about whether this is actually going to increase the number of numbers that you put into the database uh, where you have to get approval up front to do it. Um, and it might actually have the opposite uh, effect. I, it, th the same thing with reducing the collection of data. So it's just what the companies happen to keep for as long as they keep it. So you actually have less of a field of data. Um, might that encourage the agencies to actually test it more often, uh, run numbers through it more than they otherwise would if they, in fact, had knew they had a reasonably complete uh, set of data that they could test at any time when they really needed to? Uh, so there's some interesting questions. Remember when the president first announced reforms of the program back on January 17th, he affirmed... The, in his view, the necessity of continuing to have this capability and that he wanted to continue it, but he wanted to put the data in a third party's hands, some private party's hands other than the government. And I think that alternative was explored, and now you don't hear anybody talking about that anymore. And I think that's because people quickly understood that that actually was a uh, less secure option, that is to keep the entire collection of data but have it under the auspices of some private contractor, for example. Uh, so you would continue to have the whole historical database. Um, I think, you know, 
inherently a situation like that, that data would have been sitting in some suburban office park on servers that were less secure than the servers that are locked down in the basement at Fort Meade. It would be more susceptible to cyber intrusions uh, and uh, data breaches, and the people who would be accessing it would be private contractors who would be less subject to effective oversight. Um, so I think that option has been discarded. And so the only other option we're, we're left with is, well, we just leave the data with the phone companies, and we're not going to require them to keep it longer than they do in the ordinary course of business. So it's, it's kind of a random uh, outcome versus actually systematically creating a database that is as useful as it can be to do these searches to find these connections when you think you really need to do that. Except that, uh, except that it's not a random uh, outcome if you think that the right answer are targeted searches and not bulk collections. So, I mean, it's it's only random if you think that. Yeah, but you can't do a, a targeted historical search. You know, and maybe Raj will tell me, oh, we've looked at it, and the historical thing just really doesn't have that much value. We don't really need to go back uh, more than 18 months. Fine, until you do need to. But... Uh, it could still be targeted. I mean, the program was extremely targeted in the sense that this vast collection, even though it was collected in bulk, was only ever accessed and reviewed on a very targeted, very focused basis. So it is targeted. It's not a question of whether it's targeted or not. It's a question of whether you have a complete enough set of connections. Why don't we open up to the floor for questions? Margo, we'll start with you. So um, I'm really interested in the kind of the logic of bulk collection and where it's leading us. Um, so, so the internet metadata and the first telephony metadata program started, I guess, in 2003-ish. 2000 what? 2001. 2001, okay. Um, and uh, you just talked about a much, much newer program, Steve, about, uh, that, that was authorized, if I'm remembering correctly, in 2012 for NCTC with um, DHS travel data, which uses a similar logic as far as we can tell. But it, again, it's a, it's a bulk collection on a theory of relevance that then it can be pinged and tested over a period of, of, of years. And that's, until we knew about this program, and for me, that's very recent, um, uh, that seemed very new and different. And I guess what I'm wondering is, has that idea that the government should have whole masses of data and do big data stuff for uh, Americans because it's relevant on the theory of relevance that you described, has that moved to other realms too that, um, that are not you know, classified? That we just, that if we think about them conceptually, all of a sudden we're in massive bulk collection for Americans, not just with NSA, but with a whole host of agencies doing uh, counterterrorism work. And I just, I, I'm not aware of any others, but the way you said it about DHS, I'm wondering if I've missed some. Um, well, this program has always been very focused. And, and I actually think it's a, it's, it's really a miss understanding to view this as a massive bulk surveillance program uh, because a very tiny fraction of the data in the database is ever actually reviewed 
by analysts. This, this has always been, been focused. It's just that you need to preserve and have available the broader field of data in order effectively to do a focused analysis. But I think that the, you know, the, the popular reaction to this, and I really think it has been uh, mischaracterized in the press and in a lot of the public debate, and, there, and, and that have really has stimulated uh, a raging reaction. And, but it's very clear uh, that Congress, including the de strong defenders of the program and the intelligence committees, have now understood that the political tide is so strong that they do need to uh, reform this uh, so that we're not collecting at the front end the, the entire field of data. But where this is heading is singularly in the context of foreign intelligence collection under FISA, essentially a prohibition on bulk collection of metadata in, in all its forms, call, whether call detail record data or with respect to electronic communications or whatever it might be, even if it's not currently happening. So a general ban on bulk collection. And I really think that's a perilous overreaction to this, uh, to this controversy because I think there's, there's a need for a public debate about the potential use and value of bulk analysis of data. We've, we've heard about some of the new tools and techniques for analyzing data in bulk, which we are going to use in this country if it in other areas. So, for example, analyzing health data. Big data can be very revealing in terms of patterns and things that are very important to guide policy decisions. And that, that is happening. It's happening in the private sector. It's happening in government. It's a lot of regulatory agencies will be using that kind of analysis because a lot of commercial information is gathered and collected the stock market, et cetera, et cetera. But now in the context of one of the most important functions government performs, that is protecting the country against foreign attack, foreign threats, in this area we are about, I think, about to adopt a policy that strictly limits or even prohibits the analysis of data in bulk. In this program, from the very beginning, there, there, there never was any analysis of data in bulk. And I think, in part, that's because the program was so sensitive and so secret, and it has always been a very targeted uh, thing. But I think if, if there actually had been, in the wake of 9-11, a big public debate and Congress had actually grappled with the issues, there probably would have been, I think, some statutory foundation, some grant of authority for a broader bulk collection and, and bulk analysis, which when I think of bulk analysis, it, it's actually the opposite of targeting somebody and focusing in on their private connections and patterns. It's actually, as somebody was describing earlier, a, a machine analysis of general patterns of anonymous data. And if anything, that, I think, minimizes the intrusion on any one individual's uh, sphere of, of private concerns. Uh, and if, you, if, if, we're, if another 9-11 happens and, and there's a, the pendulum swings, I actually think most Americans, 
at the end of a public debate on this issue would be comfortable with machine analysis of anonymous masses of data as if, if done in a, in a way strictly to protect us from foreign threats and potential attacks. Uh, but right now we're in the midst of this hot debate that has come as a reaction to these disclosures in which we're about to adopt as a national policy a prohibition on even the collection of data in bulk for national security purposes, sing singling out foreign intel intelligence collection. So, uh, you know, I, I think we really need to step back and think about the, uh, the potential ramifications of that. And uh, because if, we're, if there's another attack, these things can, can uh, quickly change, and uh, we need to do it in a very thoughtful way. We'll take Jen's reply, and then I think Susan will have the next question. So, I mean, just uh, first on the question as to whether this understanding of relevance would allow for a lot more bulk collection, I think the answer is clearly yes. It's just not, it's not just limited to telephone new metadata, and it could also be applied in a lot of other contexts as well. Um, I think what Steve just said about the, the important, that bulk collection is so important because it tells us so much about patterns and that that's so valuable is precisely the reason why there's concerns about the bulk collection. So I don't know what the right answer is, but for precisely the reasons that it's so reportedly useful, although at least in the telephony metadata context and at least according to the, the record that the PCLAB very carefully put together, it doesn't seem as if it was actually that effective. But, I do, but the problem is, is that for precisely the reasons that it's deemed effective are precisely the reasons why it's a potentially big deal and a potentially big violation of, of people's privacy or sense of privacy. And then this just, I would just urge uh, that we think more, again, about this use issue. So just because, as Steve's mentioned a number of times, there were less than 300 queries in 2012 and there's no evidence of overuse in the past, just as the lack of clear effectiveness between its inception and the present with respect to the telephony metadata doesn't necessarily answer the question as to whether it will be effective in the future, the lack of abuse with respect to querying and overuse, although there were, but I don't want to minimize the fact that there were some compliance incidents, doesn't necessarily answer the question as to whether or not there will be overuse in the future or abuse in the future. Susan? So first I would just want to make a point to Steve's comment and then I have a question to ask. The, the point is Steve had made this comment about let's do analysis of anonymized data. There's no such thing as analysis of anonymized data, not in communications data. Once you start analyzing that data, you de-anonymize it extremely quickly. The other part of that is when you try and look at groups, uh, the, 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 you know, the thing that looks like it's the right thing to look at, namely small groups of people that communicate only with each other, that's liable to be a startup or a rock band. And you really don't want NSA chasing around those, those, those groups. It's, it's a waste of resources. And in fact, in the early days of, of these data collection programs, NSA was sending so much data over to FBI to investigate the times reported that FBI was spending its time on the wrong thing. But now let me get to my question. And it's really, I've heard a lot from policy people at the NSA, from high-level policy people at the NSA, about the importance of the, the bulk metadata collection. And it certainly sounds on its surface like it's a very rational thing. And it comes as perhaps even a little surprise from the PCLOB report and the NSA Review Committee report that it wasn't particularly effective. In, in preventing domestic terrorist attacks. And I wonder, and this is really probably more of a question to Chris and to Raj than it is to Steve, if there's been any report on the, how the analysts feel, the people who really worked with the data, if we have any information on what they think the value of the program is. 
And I realize it's unfair to toss that out, but it really is. is but I'll do it anyway. That's my job. First, I would say it's quite fair. That's why we're here, to have this discussion. Um, to your first point about um, it would be unhelpful and perhaps uh, intrusive if we discovered rock bands as opposed to the things we're really looking for, I would quickly agree, which is why this program is based upon an antecedent which says you have to have reasonable articulable suspicion that your seed, your start, actually has right um, a kind of... A, a connection, right? Right. So, so, so you don't want to then. I, I got it. I, I take your point. With respect to the things that I, Raj, Keith Alexander would say, um, that is um, based upon direct conversations with the line analyst, and by extension, the FBI. That frankly is the entity that's served by these tips and cues. They themselves feel that's valuable. Um, and to the point made that this um, could potentially only be described as to made a contribution to twelve plots within the United States over the last um, several years. Uh, that's actually pretty significant because of the 54 um, that we described last summer. Um, turns out only 12 of those, or 13 of those, were aimed at the United States. The remaining 41 were aimed outside the United States. And given that this program's principal purpose is to focus on a connection of a foreign terrorist plot into the United States, it would seem that it actually made a material contribution, albeit not the smoking gun, not the but for, right, to um, arguably a dozen. And that the existence, and, and I'm only arguing kind of, you know, the kind of the prospect of it made a valuable contribution, uh, the prospect that in one of those it could be described as having turned up something couldn't have been turned up any other way. Um, back to what Bruce said at lunch, and I don't mean to misappropriate this, so you get the last word on this, um, but the intelligence community was told um, immediately after 911, never again. Um, and consistent with the defense of civil liberties, the intelligence community helped the whole of government develop and evolve over time um, a program that was very narrowly focused on that scene. Um, there was no other sense that we could cover that scene some other way. Um, and its proscriptions, the things that it is not allowed to do, are not so much a matter of efficiency or that would kind of you know, waste processing time. Those proscriptions, in my view, are focused on the defense of civil liberties. We don't use it to detect things other than terrorism because that would be too great an encroachment upon privacy and civil liberties. We don't use that for domestic terrorism because, again, and so on and so forth. Uh, what I'm going to do is give Jen the last word here so that we can switch this panel over. We've already gone a little bit over budget on time. And uh, bring the next panel up immediately so everybody stay in place. But Jen, go ahead and finish this off here. Sure. I just wanted to actually focus the attention to another issue that I just think is worth talking about given our discussions earlier today, which is this this notion that we can we can easily distinguish between U.S. persons and non-U.S. persons, which so much of our surveillance law is founded upon, I think, is beginning to, to splinter a little bit. And I hope we spend some time talking about that later today. Wonderful. Well, thank you. You were a wonderful panel. I appreciate very much your being here.